All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI podcast. I am your host, Sam Charrington, and today I'm excited to be joined by Ugo La Rochelle. Ugo is a research scientist at the recently rebranded, renamed Google DeepMind. Uh, before we get going, be sure to take a moment to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to today's show. Ugo, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, really glad to be here with you. Same. We will be digging into, I imagine, a pretty broad range of topics, but we'll be focusing in on your particular area of research interest, which is transfer learning. But before we do that, why don't we take a moment to have you introduce yourself to our audience and tell us kind of how you came to work in ML? Sure. So I did an undergrad and a PhD at the University of Montreal, where early on, I had the chance to work in Yashra Benjil's lab. And I had a vague interest in AI when I started my, my undergrad and started looking up some profs that were working in this area. And this is how I met Yashua. The first summer of my undergrad, I wanted to do an internship at his lab. He said, not quite yet. You don't have enough stats and math courses. So I waited one more year. And then the other year, he took me in. And I started learning about neural nets and machine learning. Since then, I've not looked back. And that sort of led me to kind of fortunately, I've been very privileged to kind of happen to be in a lab that was doing neural nets at a time that where these ideas were not popular in machine learning. And so to be working early for that period or be in a small set of people doing that kind of research. And then we started seeing the kind of deep learning explosion. So the term deep learning was more or less coined during my PhD. And I was lucky to do early contributions to this sort of resurgence of ideas in neural nets, like uh, denoising autoencoders. And at the time, we're doing layer-wise pre-training using unsupervised learning. Also did some work on like very early ideas related to zero-shot learning going from task descriptions to a classifier. And then I had a chance to continue in that direction, go do a postdoc with Jeffrey Hinton, then got a faculty position at University of Sherbrooke. At the same time in Toronto, I met Jasper Snook, Ryan Adams, and others, and we did some work on Bayesian optimization applied to machine learning to do hyperparameter tuning. And we turned that idea into a startup, which was acquired by Twitter. So then I left this sort of happened while I was a professor at the University of Sherbrooke. So I left for Twitter, worked in Boston for a little bit, and eventually got the chance to start a Google Brain group in Montreal. And I was looking forward to kind of come back to Canada and Montreal in particular, give opportunities to students and professionals in AI in Montreal to actually be in a, a big corporate lab doing state-of-the-art deep learning research and then I've been here since then. Must have been summer when you had that opportunity to reconsider returning to Montreal. <laughs> <laughs> well, as it turns out, I do enjoy winter. So that's something, though, that I think is uh, it's an acquired taste, perhaps. But I do enjoy the changes of seasons when usually there's a... For, actually, for me, like in the NURPS conference in particular, oftentimes when we would come back from NURPS, we would get the first no, and it will also be like around Christmas. So it'd always be kind of like a really nice moment where I just heard a bunch of exciting things at NeurIPS. 
And I know I'm going to get a lot of free time with the holidays to kind of think about these things, but also relax. It has its benefits, I will say. I will defend winter a little bit. Not AI <laughs> winters, but winters in general. Nice. So your research interest has kind of centered around transfer learning of late. Do you, do you feel like the accepted definition of transfer learning is kind of a, the obvious place to start? Or are there nuances that are underappreciated in the community? I mean, I think of transfer learning very broadly as like you have a model that's been trained on some set of data, maybe many tasks. And then mm -hmm. from that, you do a follow-up training or adaptation to another task that's different in some ways. Maybe it's different because the input distribution, the type of data that it's seeing as input is different, or maybe the task is completely different. If you're doing image classification, maybe you're, you're classifying different properties about these images. And I think of it like as very, very broadly. I've seen sometimes in the literature, sometimes, you know, essentially when they say transfer learning, they really only mean pre-training and fine-tuning, which is like mm -hmm. the simplest approach to transfer learning for sure, but it's not the only one. And I think there's some research to do in that respect, but I think of it very broadly. And I like to think about kind of there being two phases and some of the talks that I've given recently are sort of called the neural knowledge acquisition phase and the neural knowledge mobilization phase, thinking of it as the pre-training is sort of like us trying to put as much knowledge as we can into a base machine learning or neural net model because neural nets are what we're pretty effective these days at solving tasks with. And I mm -hmm. say neural knowledge because it's not explicit knowledge. It's not written facts. It's, it's just, there's some information in that pre-trained neural network that we can yeah. hopefully mobilize and use to solve downstream tasks. And then there's the mobilization or neural knowledge mobilization phase, which is about, okay, how do I use this large neural net that has some implicit knowledge to extract the right things that I need to solve a particular task as one user? And there might be many downstream users or maybe downstream tasks we want to solve. And I've been particularly interested in the second phase of this largely because the first phase of knowledge acquisition, now it, we would pre-train very large models on lots and lots of data. This is not accessible to everyone anyways. They're compute intensive, so there should be a limited number of initiatives trying to do that. And in some ways, I feel I've contributed some ideas for this. And in my PhD days, for instance, we see denoising autoencoders, versions of this being used behind, you know, there was the BERT model and there are masked autoencoders now in vision that are becoming popular and being used frequently. And so I was fortunate to be able to contribute ideas that I think now are, are used for that pre-training phase. And I've been more recently been interested in trying to see on the knowledge mobilization phase. So how do we take this pre-trained model and extract the right information from it to solve well some downstream tasks, in particular, downstream tasks that perhaps don't have a lot of labeled data so that we get essentially a, a procedure and technology that can be used by many people for their own type of task that maybe doesn't allow for a large collection of data. And my more recent research has been more interested in that sort of second phase and trying to see whether we can do something better than fine-tuning. Mm -hmm. Largely because fine-tuning has some downsides. You know, if you fine-tune a model for any given downstream task, then for each of these tasks, you need a full copy of the 
weights of the model you fine-tuned. And that can be expensive if you want to support a lot of different downstream usages. It's also expensive from the point of view of compute. You need to do forward, full forward and backward passes over all of the network. And as they're becoming larger, that's more and more expensive. And that's something you might want to avoid, at least in terms of, of training a downstream model. And in some ways, there's no particularly good reason why fine-tuning should be the best thing to do. To me, it's always been kind of a hack in some ways. Like it's, it was... I think the the first time I remember the idea of pre-training and fine-tuning being used was maybe around like 2006. I think it was just a tech report by Jeffrey Hinton, where at the time he had proposed deep belief networks. It was going to train a large, a big multi-layer generative model on digits, a joint model of the digit image and the class ID. But we, because it was a deep model, it was hard to train at the time, you know, we'd have the compute, but also perhaps the ideas for training a large generative model like that. And so he proposed pre-training individually each layer using the learning algorithm of a restricted Boltzmann machine and a type of generative model and doing it one layer after another. And he had this whole theoretical sort of reason why that was a good idea. It was optimizing some bound over the objective of the, the final deep hmm. belief network you wanted to train. But then in this parallel tech report, it was just like, well, you can just do that, some you know, this form of unsupervised learning for a normal feed-forward neural net, add you know, a softmax layer at the end, and then just fine-tune from that. And that's also just about just as good in terms of classification performance at the time on MNIST. So it was originally thought of as more of a kind of an, an initialization approach as opposed to actually trying to achieve transfer learning? Well... I think there's an idea that doing unsupervised learning is going to capture something more informative about the structure of the data. And those features were essentially basically good, and they just needed to be adjusted mm. a little bit so that on the task you were interested in, and in this case, it wasn't even transfer learning. It was actually, you were pre-training on MNIST and you were fine-tuning on MNIST. I think the idea of then fine-tuning on a different distribution after that, I wouldn't be able to point out would be the first paper, but... And maybe before Jeff Hinton's tech report, the idea of pre-training and fine-tuning had come before. But to me, that's like the thing that I have in mind as like the first idea of separating into these two phases. But even in that tech report, it felt like it was presented as an intuitively good idea, but not really a theoretically grounded idea. And so I think to me, that means that, you know, there are other ways of taking this neural net that contains basic features and leveraging that information in neural form to solve a downstream task. And so I've been interested in trying to explore that in various ways. And how do you characterize the research landscape around this idea that it, there's more than just fine-tuning to transfer learning? Where are we in, in terms of the way we think about it? Yeah, so I think for a long time, you were either fine-tuning or you were doing this thing called linear probe, which is essentially just train the softmax layer at the top and not fine-tune the rest of the layers, keep those constant. Mm -hmm. So think of just these features as already being correct. And then slowly people started thinking, okay, well, maybe there's something in between. Maybe you want to do some fine-tuning of the network, but maybe just a subset of these parameters. Maybe you only want to fine-tune the biases of the units where the intuition there would be maybe you sort of identify a subnetwork within the pre-trained model that is essentially effective because you can turn off units essentially by having very large negative biases. 
such that no matter what their input is, they're going to stay, if you're using ReLU, say they're going to stay zero. So some of my work with people here in my group, LNE, Triantafilu in particular, we've kind of explored this idea of having kind of a, we'd call that a template, which would be the pre-trained model. And then we would fill the template, essentially the batch norm parameters that it would be using. So the bias and the scaling parameters in each layer. And think of solving different tasks as just swapping different batch norm parameters. And that has the advantage that when you're, say, adapting to a downstream task, you only need, in terms of memory, to memorize for that task what are the new batch norm parameters and what are the output weights. You don't need all of the other parameters because they, they're the same from the pre-trained model. So that allows you to have a lot of potentially thousand downstream tasks where you essentially think of the pre-trained model as a template and each downstream task has, fills in the template with, with these uh, task-specific batch norm parameters. But that also has a disadvantage, which is that when you fine-tune these batch norm parameters or whatever subset of parameters in, in the pre-trained backbone that you end up training for the task, you still need to do a full forward and backward pass whenever you're training. Again, if the pre-trained model is very large, that can be expensive. And that led to some more research of trying to avoid that, where the idea there with a method that uh, we call head-to-toe, and that was led by Utku Evchi in my group as well, was to also think of a pre-trained model as essentially having all the right features, but that essentially the features, some of them are just not at the very top of the model. They might be hidden somewhere within the model. And maybe all that fine-tuning is doing is kind of emerging, making sure that this information surfaces all the way to the top. But then another way of accessing that information might just be, I'm going to have a linear probe, but that has access to all the layers. So it has these kind of skip connections into intermediate layers of the pre-trained model. But that's a lot of features. So to try to address that, we would also enforce some sparsity in the connectivity of that linear probe. So it could maybe have no connections with the second layer, a few in the third layer, no connections in the fourth, and so on, and kind of essentially infer which connections it wants to keep and which features it wants to use for that downstream task itself by essentially training a, a sparse linear classifier on all of these features, which was kind of the next iteration and this research agenda of trying to figure out other ways of doing this neural knowledge mobilization, but with, uh, by avoiding full fine-tuning. And we've shown that in some ways, indeed, we're able to match the performance of fine-tuning by doing that. But presumably much more computationally efficient? That's right. Yeah. I think we're taking less than 10% of flops in terms of training time because of the sparsity of the classifier. And again, also because the probe is sparse, the number of parameters it would have would also be below 10%. It would, it would take much less memory to store for this particular downstream task you'd be solving. And when you talk about these probes, the problem is still classification in all cases, or there are other transfer applications where you can utilize these skip connections and some of this architecture that you propose? Yeah, we focus on classification, a lot of it out of convenience. It's a task that a lot of people are interested in solving. There's nothing for head-to-toe that would preclude us from tackling other tasks, but partly out of convenience and also because it is a very popular task. We've mostly focused on, on that, but I don't see a reason why it wouldn't be applicable to regression. It would be interesting to see if it could be a, applicable to things like semantic segmentation or other things like that. So this points to potentially interesting follow-up work for sure. Mm -hmm. And here, yeah, you can help me kind of 
put together this question, but you've trained the base model, you've kind of learned these kind of linear pieces. Are there other things that you can do with them beyond the task that you initially trained on or the the task that you tuned on? Like, are they useful like embeddings in a general way? I guess that's the picture that, that came to mind for me. Potentially, I think one thing that I thought that I really liked about this project that I thought just doing that research actually helped us bring some insights into what is being learned by these models was to kind of look at for different types of tasks, where is it that it's pulling features? And I wouldn't go as far as saying like it would help with interpretability or anything like that. But I think to me, doing this project was also about testing a particular theory as to how is information captured by these models? Is it completely black box or are there ways in which these layers are separating out information in a more semantic or somewhat conceptual level. And I think the answer there was a bit mixed in that, interestingly, I think we found often that the first hidden layer, the one that's closest to the input, was fairly frequently useful. And it was particularly useful, if I remember correctly, when the downstream task that we were solving was very different from the pre-training tasks. So to give more mm -hmm. details on the experimental setup, there we would use a pre-trained model in ImageNet, and then we'd looked at the number of other classification tasks. In particular, we looked at the VTAP benchmark, which comes from colleagues at Google in, in Europe. And I think it's called, the, uh, the VTAB stands for Visual Task Adaptation Benchmark. And it includes a number of different tasks. Some of them are synthetic, some of them are natural images. Some of them are sort of very different from natural images, but still real tasks, like doing some form of predictions based on satellite imagery or medical imagery. And what we found is that these intermediate layers are particularly useful when the downstream task is different. So essentially, intuitively, if you're going from ImageNet to, I'm trying to remember which task was considered very similar, but I think something like classifying images of pets. There are a lot of animals in ImageNet, but there's this other data set, this pets data set. And indeed, we found that you didn't need as much internal features. The top embedding was pretty good already for solving this pets downstream task. But if you look at, say, medical imagery or other synthetic data set are very different, then accessing these very early layers was useful. And we couldn't otherwise see like better organized structure, except for essentially the first hidden layer, which were probably going to be more or less edge detectors, because we know we learned that from training on ImageNet. That was often very useful in, in adapting to other downstream tasks. But then the rest of it was a little bit more diffuse, or it was hard to sort of determine from one task to another what kind of structure there was. There were definitely more useful often or complementary to the topmost layer. And so irrespective of the success of the method, I think probes in the past have been used, and they're called probes partly because the idea was to try to probe the information from these deep networks and access it more directly within the layer. Mm -hmm. I think that's roughly where the term probe comes from. And in addition to being a successful method, if we start exposing all layers, for us, it's been interesting because it also was allowing us to kind of probe, okay, how is information distributed across, across an ImageNet pre-trained model? You can imagine doing that, actually, sort of taking a pre-trained model, taking a number of downstream tasks you're interested in, and using this head-to-toe method to try to maybe infer perhaps how high-level these features are for different downstream tasks. And maybe characterizing a little bit more, like where is 
pets information distributed within this model versus other types of semantic categories or other type of concepts that are not from natural images. And so I think that's a nice aspect of this project that I've enjoyed. Got it. So we've talked about a couple of broad categories or approaches to transfer learning in the research. One is kind of fine-tuning, chop off layers, starting from the head and work your way back and fine-tune. The other is kind of keep things relatively static and access internals via probes are there. Is the research dominated by approaches that fall into one of those two categories or is it broader than that? Yeah. So I think for computer vision right now, this is the, a fairly common approach to transfer learning. And the area of NLP, and notably with the rise of large language models as a, as a way of capturing a lot of background information about language, about code also, and many more things. Another approach that, that we've seen that's been very popular is, has been prompting, essentially including information in the context of the large language model that would describe the task that you're interested in solving now, leveraging all of the implicit knowledge and information captured by the large language model. People have looked at doing literal prompt where you're actually putting text. The text might describe different pairs of input-output examples for the downstream task you're interested in. There's the notion of soft prompt where you're actually doing backdrop into a free vector or a couple of free vectors that are going to be fine-tuned on your small training set in your downstream task. And that has been also quite interesting to see evolve as sort of a, an approach to doing forms of transfer learning. I mentioned I did some early work during my PhD on, on zero-shot learning. The method we called uh, zero-data learning was the term that we used. Because at the time, as far as I knew, zero-shot learning was not a term that people had coined. And I think Yashua Benjo at the time suggested that. And to this day, I regret using this term because zero-shot learning <laughs> was clearly the better term. People kept asking us, what does that mean, zero-data learning? Because it makes no sense. You're learning from no data. I could see why people were confused. Yeah. And not so long after our paper, in fact, there was a, a zero-shot learning paper. And that was essentially trying to use the same idea, which is in zero-shot learning, you're trying to essentially use, let's call it metadata or data about the task that might be a worded description of the task and have a, a model that can take data as input and then give you a predictor to solve that particular task. We've seen that being enabled by these large language models. So for me, it's been really exciting to see kind of this idea sort of being now used in a much larger scale and much more successfully. And one in ways in which I've been interested in trying to explore that in a more modern context. So doing a form of this neural knowledge mobilization that I've been talking about, but using prompting has been in the context of machine learning models for code. So essentially completing a line of code based on code that comes before it. It's been a huge application for these kinds of models. Uh, me and Danny Tarlow in my group have been quite interested in that. And we've been advising students, particular in this area. The upcoming ICML, there's uh, a paper we'll be presenting on uh, trying to do this form of prompting, but trying to see whether we can use, and this is work led by Disha Srivastava, where what we wanted to see is that, so large language models typically are trained, and this is a project we started some time ago, and they will have a fairly limited context. And the context will just be the previous tokens before, say, where your cursor is, where you want to start doing some completion of the code. 
it would typically only be the preceding code because it's kind of a quote unquote causal model that sort of predicts one tokens based on the previous ones. But really in practice, when you're writing code, often you're maybe in the middle of the file or your file of your project is part of a repository. So there are other files and other directories in the repository, mm -hmm. which might include functions you want to call, classes you want to instantiate. And so our question was, well, even though if we have a pre-trained model that's, that's only been trained in a causal way within single text, just predicting the next token, we know that there's these kind of emerging properties, as we've called them, where you can still provide sort of general task descriptions, input-output pairs in the context, and somehow it's learned to do this kind of zero-shot or few-shot generalization. And so the question we wanted to see is that, will, would it actually be able to take snippets of code that comes from other files that is not the current file and still kind of figure out how to leverage that information to do better code completion? And in a way, this is, I wasn't very optimistic going in because I thought, well, we're clearly going to be constructing contexts that are nothing like what the large language model, in our case, we use Codex for the project. Can I jump in and have you clarify the novelty here? Codex, for example, part of what it's doing is it's pulling context from different places. And as they've evolved Codex, sorry, Copilot in particular, like they have talked about how one of the big challenges that they've taken on is like where they get the contacts from exactly and what you've done in this paper. Is I it think at the time when we started this project, I don't think Copilot was doing that or it wasn't known if it was doing that. And so I think we sort of did that about the, about the same time. And so that's why we're using Codex and Codex. Okay. But it's the same general idea here. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And this was like when we've done this project for some time now and only now managed to get it published. It's been on archive for a bit longer. That's how quickly the field evolves. But for me, what was really interesting also about this project is trying to see what kind of capabilities these large language models have that it goes outside the task that it's been trained to solve. Therefore, when we were putting in context that came from outside, actually the context that the code would, the language model would see would not even be code that actually compiles necessarily because we're kind of putting in code that comes from elsewhere. And we're just trying to see, is it still capable of leveraging that? And also one of the questions was, well, how do we decide what code from where to put in? And so in this mm -hmm. work that, that we did, it's going to appear at ICML, the way we address that is that we would define a number of different templates for where we could take code. It could be from the same file, but later in the file. It could be the function definitions of sibling files in the same directory. It could be the variables and the file of that we were importing in this current file. And essentially trying all potential options on the small training set and mm. sort of seeing which which ones in what context tended to work and allow Codex to come up with the right answer in terms of completion, and then train another neural net that would essentially predict the success of each of these different templates. Yeah, I think early on with Copilot, it was more rules-based or heuristics-based where they pulled code from to do prompt generation. But what you're saying here is this is learning which code is going to be most helpful to the specific generation. And well, you say repository level, are you learning this at the repo level or at the query level or in the context of a particular query? 
So it's repository level because we'll, for a given context, pull in information from anywhere in the repository. But which mm -hmm. template you invoke, so which prompt you construct, will depend on the context. So if you were doing completion multiple places in a given file, you might be pulling different contexts for different lines in the file, for instance. So it would be sort of adaptive to the particular situation you're, you're trying to extract information. So it'd be more adaptive. But yeah, I think more or less we're exploring this exactly at the... I mean, it's when we came up with the idea, part of me was excited because I thought that seems like it has a good potential. At the same time, I was like, I, I'm kind of not sure if it's going to work because we're really going to be creating context that will be completely out of distribution with respect to what the language model would have ever seen because the context we're constructing, they don't run the way we sort of put them together. We were thinking maybe we'll need to be clever and be like, add the pulled in context as comments in the code as opposed to just mm -hmm. putting the code there. But we didn't even have to be clever in that way. We could just put in the code and the language model was sort of oftentimes be able to leverage it better than if it didn't have any context. And just to make sure I understand that fear, the thought was that you'd be pulling in these snippets that were taken out of context and not complete like the kind of data the LLM was trained on, you know, like entire functions that could run somewhere. And the thought was maybe it would get confused and start generating gibberish as a result. Well, yeah, that's right. It's essentially that context, the way it'd be, because it'd be kind of like glued in snippets of different parts of different files would look nothing like code that someone would actually write. And so yeah. would that confuse the large language model or would it still kind of be able to overcome that out of distributionness of what it's seeing? And so again, like to me, a lot of these projects are also about trying to uncover interesting properties of these various ways we can pre-train large models from lots of data. And here it was kind of interesting to see that it had some amount of robustness it's more than robustness. It's actually can, if you put in better information, it will actually leverage it. An interesting other dimension that I sort of put into my general interest in, in transfer learning. And did you need to tell it that, hey, these are going to be different than what you might be expecting? You know, these are just snippets, that kind of thing. Like, did you explore whether that was an important part of the prompt construction? So yeah, we, we didn't have to do anything special, which was surprising to me. Mm -hmm. So this is why I was saying, I thought maybe these snippets will need to put them as comments in the actual code so that it knows you're not running these. They're just there and you can take from it. But yeah, no, we didn't even have to do that. So surprising property that these models have. And kind of looking forward, you mentioned the rise of LLMs and generative AI is kind of all the, the buzz now. How do you see that broadly impacting the direction of your research? And are there other interesting questions that arise for you in kind of the intersection of transfer and LLMs? Yeah, I would say, I mean, I find the way that this area is evolving very fascinating. I will say I naturally have a tendency to try to avoid problems that a lot of people are working on. I just <laughs> find that less motivating. I mean, even for this project, initially we thought no one's going to be crazy enough to try this. And then later on, we learned our Copilot is kind of doing apparently a version of this. And we were in some way scooped. And so we're really glad actually that it got accepted at ICML this time, because I think otherwise we're like, oh, people might just think it's old news at this point. And so moving forward, I've, instead of going in NLP, one thing that I've been interested in is 
focusing more on vision and in particular focusing on remote sensing domains. And I've been really interested in trying to tackle environmental problems. So doing things from satellite imagery, making some predictions about what might be species that are present and potentially using that as an analysis tool for analyzing, getting a sense of how the state of the environment is evolving, maybe using that to drive some policy if we have good tools. And so my student, Milizan Tang, just presented a, an early workshop work at iClear where we presented a data set for doing that from extracted from eBird, where you take some satellite imagery and you predict the probability of observing various types of species. It was presented at the AI and climate change workshop at iClear, and we're lucky enough to that it was given a, a paper award at the workshop, so we're really proud of that, which encourages us to continue forward in, in this area. I think this is an area that's a bit overlooked. I think we can still study very interesting transfer learning problems because we need to generalize to the future, or we need to generalize from locations where we don't have labeled data because labeled data about various problems are not necessarily collected equally well all around the world. So sort of, sort of looking at a problem people don't look into practically all that much, but I sort of believe is we need people doing these kinds of problems. And I think at the same time, we'll be able to do some cool research. So I think this is one thing in particular I'm excited about. Awesome. Maybe switching gears a little bit. We're about a year into the TMLR experiment. Did you think of it as an experiment or uh, the TMLR being the machine learning research journal that you launched uh, with others? Yeah, transactional machine learning research. Yep. In many ways, it's an experiment. Obviously, I think we're all hoping Kyung Young Cho and Raya Hatzel, the other editors-in-chief. We had as initial managing editor, Fabian Pedragosa. It was obvious we're doing something new certainly for machine learning at a minimum. So for context, you know, the idea here was to try to address a lot of things we didn't like about or a hole that we were seeing in the publishing ecosystem in machine learning. So people were either publishing at conferences, uh, shorter versions of their papers with only uh, very few deadlines over the year. And the role of a conference is, and I think that this is something that people have a, some difficulty with the role of a conference. Some people think it's about identifying what are the papers that are correct science, but actually a conference does more than this. It's certainly wanting to only accept correct science, but it's also trying to identify what does the community think is exciting right now and most worthy of attention. And that second element, that's very much an editorial or subjective assessment. And I think a lot of the noise in the accept and reject decisions at conferences partly come because of that, because of that nature of what conferences are trying to achieve. So that few deadlines, which I think also makes working as a researcher in machine learning sort of pretty stressful, it seems cramming for the next deadline. Everyone runs out of compute at the last minute. and That's right. Also, yes. So we thought having a journal that would be appealing for these kinds of short form publication might be good. Also, we wanted to use the open review system, so doing open reviewing. There were no journals in machine learning that were doing that. So GMLR is a very well-established journal, and TMLR is part of the GMLR family. It's closed reviewing, so it's not open reviewing. It's also usually longer-form papers. So we kind of felt that was like an opportunity to contribute something unique. And our approach to reviewing would be that we would only assess whether the claims made in the paper are matched by convincing evidence. And then we would treat the, the, any signal related to how exciting the work is as something separate. 
And for that, in, in the journal, we think of this as certifications that people would give as like, oh, this should be a featured certification, meaning that it's probably like spotlight or oral sort of excitement level at a conference. We also now that we've been through this for a year, we're starting to talk with conferences who might want to feature some TMLR papers at their conference because they find the work exciting and they only have to do this assessment. They can sort of be fairly confident that scientifically speaking, the work is solid and that we could give certifications associated with any given conference. So we have our first agreement or experiment with AutoML and also with COLAS now, two conferences, smaller conferences we'll work with to have these event certifications. And for me, the dream is to kind of reach this point where TMLR is uh, where people submit their work at any time, only when it's ready. And then after that, you start shopping around different kind of venues that might want to feature this work and give it some spotlight. And then we'd have an ecosystem of different certifications coming from different communities. And this is very close to kind of a vision that Jan Lecker had for reinventing reviewing many years ago that has been a, a big inspiration for this. And so far, it's been going well. We're getting about, I think at this point, our rate is about a thousand submission a year, I think. It's probably going to get bigger with time, but you know, it's a good thing that's somewhat slowly increasing. And I found that to be pretty rewarding. It's a lot of work, but oftentimes we get really good feedback from people so far about the quality of the experience. And so, yeah, I think maybe in some ways it's still an experiment, but I would say it's less Mm -hmm. an experiment than it was a year ago. And we feel on more solid grounds. (laughs) That's awesome. Ogo, it was great catching up with you and getting an update on your research. Thanks for taking the time and, and joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.